insert intro music a little disclaimer if you are listening to this on an audio platform i would suggest to watch this episode on my youtube channel awakening indian design where diana our guest shares a lot of images and videos for explaining her research approach and philosophy so namaskara and welcome back to another episode of awakening indian design for the listeners out there if there are any this episode is a start of a new series called getting schooled where i get schooled on various topics from various experts we have one such expert here today diana albaran gonzales diana is a native latin american design researcher from mexico currently living in aotearoa in new zealand she recently graduated from the maori and indigenous faculty at auckland university of technology where her thesis focused on the decolonization of design in collaboration with mayan weavers from chiapas mexico her place of origin she has developed a buen vivir centric design model towards a fair dignified life based on collective well-being textiles crafts design arts and creativity she is also a representative of design for change in new zealand a global movement that teaches children a basic design thinking process towards social change diana has more than 15 years of experience in new zealand uh, singapore japan spain and mexico applying learning and teaching design process and tools this has given her the ability to address challenges in a variety of contexts and meaning sense of color and sensitivity she's a creativist and active member of the latin american community seeking to contribute to women's and families well-being over the whole to connection to her own cultural roots so now come to my podcast thank you for the invitation and for having me yeah So first of all uh, could you share some details of your uh, design education journey and uh, run up to your uh, topic of decolonizing design Okay um so I started I study a bachelor in industrial design in Mexico and um I started in 1999 now it sounds so long ago <laughs> and then um from there then I yeah I worked as an industrial designer, product designer for a while, and then I went to Spain to, and I did a master's there in design management and new products development. And I worked as a um, design uh, lecturer for a while in Mexico since two, after Spain, like since 2008. So I've been teaching design and creativity and, and these topics until in 2011, I moved to Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah because of family plans and stuff my daughter was very young she was born the same year actually and then so in singapore i did a, a, a few projects there more as a freelancer independent consultant and stuff um and in collaboration like like let's say my we design studio <laughs> in collaboration with a, a friends from mexico designers from mexico um and then I came, but the the PhD was something that it was always in back of my head and um and then I came to Aotearoa to New Zealand and I found like the university that I I actually start teaching first 
in Oakland University of Technology. Um, I started teaching design and, and uh, design major for the bachelor in business actually it was very different and it was aligned to my master's but then um, yeah so I started actually my first approach was in social design and mm -hmm. crafts let's say if we put it like ethical consumption if we put like in very broad terms but then doing the research and starting like textile has been part of my heritage for and my mm -hmm. history since I was born from birth you know like Mexico has a lot of uh, uh, richness in textiles that is it's very unique and diverse in in different regions and stuff so that's something that has always been part of let's say my identity the, I inherit the love of textiles from my mother as she's mm. been always wearing with pilas and stuff in a time when they was not trendy <laughs> like now it's it's becoming more common but then at that time it wasn't not as common and then um um yeah so when i started analyzing or approaching textile or craft let's say in even the, the term craft and i quote unquote because um yeah like we learned this distinction and very broad hierarchy between in spanish we call it artesanía craft in Me in, in english there's no translation there's no distinction between manualidad yeah artesanía but for us there is like the cultural aspect in artesanía is very important and then we have design and then we have art you know like as a main thing but for that approach is very imposed as a very western approach into um, art design and craft that imposes and put our like even they call folk art, like anything that is not sometimes and many times not European, it's put in the folk art. And oh, start uh, questioning like... If I can ask a question. Uh, yeah. You mentioned about the hierarchy, right? The craft, uh, yeah. art and the design. Was it yeah. there previously before colonization or did it happen after colonization? Um, yeah, like in... Uh, let's say artists or people and well I'll talk about particularly like Mayan uh, perspective but being uh, writing because the writing system in Mayan it ha is, has a lot of symbols mm -hmm. so the distinction between being a scholar and an artist it wasn't clear as it is now okay and weavers were very respected in a very high uh, let's say hierarchy in, in within the social structures and that was also Aztec and and Mesoamerican culture. So those distinctions came later. Mm -hmm. So at the end, um, now we, we operate on the distinction of art, design, and craft, which is, I think it's very problematic because especially put, recognizes as if you're non, let's say, non-white or non-European, it put anything of art creation from Native um, Americans or from people from other countries as a folk art, or mm -hmm. as a craft, but not at the same level as art. So at the end, there's a, there's a, um, um, yeah, hierarchies that start happening and, and clashing with each other. So I think that that's something that we need to really um, start rethinking. Because even for me, um, yeah, I learned embroidery by my mom and by my aunties, like my dad's uh, sisters. And textile work and all of this stuff that has always kind of or perceived as being as a soft skill for women, you know, like something you do in your house and it's been even kind of oppression thing.
But then now this in Latin America, there's a huge movement on reclaiming these practices and even using a lot of activism mm -hmm. and, and using textiles in order to, to talk about uh, hard issues, you know? So the knowledge that comes with textiles goes beyond only like now label as fashion, but there's a lot of meaning in textiles and not only the patterns, but the techniques and the beliefs and the systems of even like I can't imagine or how, how many people can imagine to create a garment like everything just by backstrap loom weaving that is something like this you know like a few sticks and threads yeah so that's technology but we see that as something that is kind of become yeah like a folklore but it goes beyond that. And I think we need, we really need to shift that mindset. And that's what also shift my thinking into decolonial. When I found out about decolonial theory, I thought it was very good because social design sometimes it, it approaches from a very, it could be very paternalistic, you know, like mm -hmm. I, yeah, poor people in developing countries, they don't know what to do. So let's go and help them. And, but the issues, Issues about power, access, privilege, politics are not addressed in social design sometimes. And I think there's key things to address if you are coming in a position of privilege and power towards working with vulnerable communities. Right. So that's why a decolonial theory really helped a lot and also very context-based, you know, like there are amazing scholars um, from Latin America writing about these topics for decades. So I, mm -hmm. I thought it, was, it became a natural turn even though I was here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Fantastic. Uh, so I'll come to the uh, question, what is decolonizing design? Okay, let me, I will share my screen now sure. so I can show you a few stuff. Um, well, I am kind of against like single definitions. Yeah. Because it depends on where the context and who is doing the power relationships across. So I wouldn't dare to define as a single thing, but I can give you my view and my experience. Yeah. So for me, decolonizing design, it's understanding that the design, at least is very linked to design education. So the design as we know, let's say of the design that we learn in schools, like you mentioned in your podcast, the Bauhaus and all of that, is um, it's uh, Western centric. So it's Eurocentric, Anglo-Eurocentric, Anglo you know, like, um, so we learn about these European trends on design. Right. But if, and what about the others? You know, like this, for me, one of the first steps and the things that I was, I was trying to do with my students is just to acknowledge when I was teaching design history is just, we will talk about Western design history and European design history and make sure that because Auckland is one of the most diverse cities in the world. So just letting students know from other countries, like, you know, like we have our own design histories right. that are different. So for me, that one of the steps that I could do um, while being in, in the classroom. So it's just acknowledging like what we talk about a single design is actually, it's very narrow minded and it's just one, vision of the world which is so different from each context 
So for me, that's one of the main things, just acknowledging and understanding that design exists. And as a, a colleague um, from Colombia, a good friend, Alfredo Gutierrez Borrero, he talks about diseño con otros nombres or designs with other names mm -hmm. or designs or others talking about design from the South. So design where we, um, we have different approaches because there's a disconnection when we are educated with this view, even in Mexico, of arts and crafts movement, you know, like from the UK. And then when you look around us and it's still alive. It's different. Right. It's very different. So, but we don't, it's like we don't make the connection between what is in our context within what we're studying in university. So I think it's very important to acknowledge that we have different ways of designing because if we learn, and, and many times, one of the, I think, also problematic things that I see in Mexico and other Latin American countries is that because we are educated this way, and there's a strong disconnection with the context from the South that we work and live in. We are originated from the South, like the global South. Mm -hmm. And then we are working with, in, in communities in the global South, but with knowledge from the global North. So yeah. there's a, a strong disconnection. And sometimes what you, in practice, when you start working with communities, you realize like things actually don't fit sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one, one question that I wanted to ask was, you mentioned the way of designing. Mm. So you mean to say the design process should also be decolonized? Um, and again, whose design process? <laughs> because okay. it depends who you reference to. Because is, is it one design process or people develop their own design processes and different cultures have their own design processes. So I think because if we talk about design, it's, yeah, it's link of ways of being and doing. So even the term process, it's very a Western thing to, to, you know, like to break it into these different steps as, you know, like it's being told of design process, like how many steps, depending which school you will have four, five, six or more. So I kind of resist that um, to, to really fit into that definition. But I think um, if, because it's the onto, ontologies of design, ways of being design, ways of doing design. So at the end, um, things are hand to hand. If you talk about decolonizing design, the process is embedded in that. How do you do design? It's embedded in that. Right, right. So one thing uh, that I actually wanted to mention was uh, uh, in, in uh, India right now, they mm -hmm. are building new structures for uh, uh, the temples. So mm -hmm. it's completely new uh, temple architecture for, uh, for, for the religion, which is Hinduism and culturally it's uh, uh, Sanatana Dharma per se. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, what has happened is that right now uh, the whole new architecture has it has implemented the architects have implemented the the Bauhaus principles in temple architecture and it's yeah, and I'm I don't know what to say but I mean I'm I'm really mm. enraged and and for the fact is that we are not in a position because India uh, has, you know, received uh, its uh, uh, independence seven decades ago, and it's you can say it's a fairly new country, but 
we are still trying to grasp our cultural heritage, uh, mm. our cultural values, traditions, practices. Uh, there's so much of knowledge which has been lost because of invasions and colonizations. Uh, and, and now it's like they're trying to bring everything from the West and implementing it into a temple. Temple is supposed to be like the, the epitome of uh, the, the cultural values and heritage, right? Uh, mm. And uh, uh, they're trying to secularize that religious place, which is <laughs> not acceptable at all. Uh, yeah. So I, if, in my way, I felt that that is actually colonization. And even though mm. the architects are Indians, and it's yeah. not done by outsiders, uh, which is fascinating. And also I'm a little enraged, as I mentioned. But mm. yeah, this is where we are right now. Yeah, it's it's very it's very complex because we talk when we talk about coloniality, um, decolonize or decoloniality, you know, like there's many scholars like Aníbal Quijano and Maldonado Torres that they talk about the coloniality of the being, and right. then uh, an African I forgot his name, sorry, but uh, the coloniality of the mind that decolonizing the mind, you know, like the, the let's say colonization and the coloniality is manifested within ourselves as well. And we can, of course, we can reference the work of, of, of Franz Fanon and, you know, like all of them, like they were talking about the consequences of because we've been raised from a Western point view and we try to reproduce the reproduce that, the, let's say, the, the, the colonial or because we are taught that the idea way of the superior way of doing stuff, it's always somewhere else. Right. Instead of looking back and looking and rescuing the knowledge that we already have. But it's funny because a lot of people talk about future and be modern, you know, like even modernity. It's a short period in time. And we forget that before that, there's like history in each context for centuries. But it's like we can't imagine we forgot and we can't imagine that that's another way. It's like oh, in order to be modern, you have to be this way. And that's yeah. it. Yeah, you have to be in and, and that's, Yeah, and that's why when I think when when I hear about indigenous futurism and all of that, it's like yes, yeah, all the ways of imagining futures, and people believe that it's like, oh, it's going backwards, you know, like oh, you can't leave, like the past is already gone, but the knowledges are still there. Why can't we? It's not that we can go back in time and live like in that time, but we can use the learnings and rescue the learnings that were still present and right. then moving to the future. So that's a right. different perspective. Like, yeah, I think uh, you, mentioned, yeah. you mentioned in your uh, thesis that you have to look back to the past to, to move forward into the future. Yeah, like in indigenous worldviews, not only me, like here in, in like uh, Maori Pacifica cultures um, and I think Native Americans as well, um, in the US and Canada, First Nations, they talk about that, uh, that actually the past is not in our back, it's in front of us because it already passed. We can see what's there and the future is in our back because we don't see what's coming. We don't know right. yet what's coming. Right. So, and even the, the, in, in, in terms of time, like in, in Mayan calendar and stuff, like the terms of time were cyclical. So sometimes it's not that it's linear thing, that linear way of thinking of, of time as well and it, it's, a, it's a Western way of per perceiving time and, and space because yeah, it, the, the spiral, it's present right. in many indigenous worldviews. Absolutely.
uh, and, and coming back to the decolonizing design and yeah. its discourse in academics. So mm. should this be made as a, a compulsory discipline in the uh, educational institutions like design schools? Um, yeah, I'm not fond of compulsory anything, <laughs> but it needs to be a lot of discussions and reform definitely that are way more context-based. Like for example, I like here, and even here in Aotearoa, like there's not many places that you can actually learn from Maori designers. You know, like there's great initiatives like Naho Maori Design and there's this like groups of professionals that are designing like the Tearanga principles that are based on Maori ways of being and doing. But it's not something that is actually so available out there in, in education. So it, and it's, and comparing to other contexts, like for example, um, Latin America, we, we are very, the coloniality of the being is so present still that it happens the same as you, it's happening in India, as you said, instead of looking back and, and I can't imagine like the temples, I can't, well, I haven't been in India yet that I would love to go, <laughs> but, um, but I can't imagine the knowledge that comes in architecture, like a ruins, you know, like yeah. they were so perfectly built, aligned with the equinox, the sun, everything. So just so much knowledge that goes, it's so rich that just losing that and reproducing something that is out of a context. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's such a shame. And also about India, what I, what I wanted to, I've been thinking like since you contacted me the first time and I was listening to your podcast, it's like, yeah, I, I told you I haven't been there, but if the other things that I know are based on my friends as well from, from different parts of India, it's just, um, and that happened in Mexico as well, to be careful about the, let's say, nationalism. Mm -hmm. Because when we talk about, again, the discussion about what's Mexican design, and, and it's, it's, oof, it's a never-ending story. And because one thing is the national identity, yeah. the politics, and another thing is the rich diversity of each region of each region. So in India, that would be like Punjab or Bengal. What Bengal design would look like, what Punjab design would look like, you know? Like, and it's not would look like, looks like, because it's already there. It's just right. we need to frame it and see it in a different lens. And even because of colonization in, 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 in India, like Pakistan, you know, and Bangladesh, yeah, like the whole there wasn't any distinction about uh, as a region and cultural regions were divided very different into the geopolitics of the present. Right. So, you know, yeah. like, why can't we just look back? Not because we want to go back in time, but because we can learn from the things that we were doing right before. Yeah. So <laughs> the thing that I felt was the fact is that uh, there was there's so much knowledge that we have uh, unfortunately lost through the ages. So so much uh, misrepresentation of that civilization, misinformation, misreproduction of the, uh, the the knowledge that existed. So right now we are dealing with a lot of fake news. We don't mm. know uh, what is real or what is booga booga. So that's kind of uh, a situation where okay, what are we going to do next? And how are we going to have values? Where are we going to you know, you know, get the values from? Uh, are we going to take everything from the West? 
And to be honest, India, there are a lot of other people out there in India uh, who are more Western than the people from the West in their attitudes and their behavior. Uh, oh, yeah. And for me, it's, 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 I mean, there's nothing, there's no problem with that per se. But the fact is that we have to know who we were in the past uh, to, to really know, to base ourselves to, uh, you know, to make decisions so that we don't repeat the same in the future. Mm. Yeah, like for example, you asked me about, um, in one of your questions, you were talking about um, identity, I think. Right. And for example, that's really related to coloniality, at least from my context again. Um, we, are, we were born or we were raised at least mm -hmm. since, I think um, around 1920s, mid 20s, 30s, um, because of the education policy change, and it was about um, talk about the cosmic race or la raza cosmica right. as a new race, you know, like and and then we are called mestizos, that oh Mexicans mestizos identify mostly as mestizos, which is the mix of uh, indigenous with Spanish, mm -hmm. and kind of. And I, I grew up like that. I learned that all my life and I had no problem with that. I knew that, and in a way it's like, yes, I know that I have indigenous blood, but from where? And all of that is just there. And a lot of like mixed identity or mixed race, like as the mestizo is always looking towards uh, Europe and, and, and Spain. Like, so you will say like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm this, but my grandfather was. Uh, mm. Spanish or but you know like the but yeah. and then there's no incentive to know our indigenous ancestry so this space of in between is that you can't root properly within your own land because you don't know exactly and and also it's a lot of and I understand because you don't want to like current indigenous communities are very marginalized and you don't want to take a space that doesn't you know like you haven't and I acknowledge that being a mestizo in Mexico mm -hmm. actually comes with a privilege right. rather than being from an indigenous community. So just claiming the indigeneity in my context, that will take sometimes as, as a very problematic space because I, I didn't suffer from the oppression of being marginalized as a, as a indigenous person from pueblos originarios currently. So we need to be aware of our positionalities. Like it's not the same when I talk about this research within outside Aotearoa or in Aotearoa rather than when I'm in Mexico, you yeah. know, like because our stories are very important. So that, that thing of, as you said, like there are more Western people in India, like in Latin America is the same. It's very similar. Yeah. And even even in Mexico now the term white chicken that they believe oh. that they are more white care like oh. so it's and even the term mestizo first it was imposed and second it's um, it really erased the histories or the diversity of the nation as a foundation because there are Afro descent uh, Afro Mexicans like Afro descent communities that have been there like for centuries of course and only in 2015 they were acknowledged in the census as Afro-Mexicans. So mm -hmm. their contributions in music, in food, in many stuff are very present, but they have never been named. Oh, yeah. Because of course, slavery. Because being Afro-descendant means oh, you, became, you became as a slave. So no one wants to identify that. And also there's been migration into the country for centuries. Like, right. 
yeah, my great grandfather was Japanese and he arrived into Mexico. So I have that as well. So, you know, like, I think trying to unify or to have this homogeneous image of a Mexican, at least, it's very, it's assimilating a lot of communities that are erasing their own histories. And I think, why can we acknowledge all our origins without having this? But I know, as you said, it's talking about decolonization. It's very always related into power and privilege, therefore in politics. Right. So that's why a lot of people are very scared, very scared even of the term because like, oh no, no, I want to, and I know a lot of people's like, I don't care about politics. It's like, normally the people who are in privilege say that because the people who are suffering from or marginalized, they can't avoid that. True, true. So how, how did you deal with your identity in your thesis? Um, well, for me, the decolonization work or talking about decolonization taught you directly, personally. Like that notion of doing research from an objective Western perspective of objectivity, that you are disconnected with things, I think it doesn't, yeah. at least it doesn't match or it's not aligned with decolonization and therefore also touches you personally. And the decolonization or decolonial work starts from within you True. and questioning your own histories, your own identities. Can you name your ancestors from where? Why not? You know, like all of what languages I should be speaking, even if colonization didn't happen, you know, like I would be speaking Mexicano, Nahuatl from uh, the Huasteca Hidalguense from my mom's side and Purepecha from my dad's side. But that's, that's a journey that I have been consciously doing in to reconnect and discover my indigenous roots because I didn't know before, you know, like, so, and my different positionings as well. So, you know, like it's, it's a journey. And I think, decolonization is a journey that it will take time and for me I, I don't remember someone asked me before like um why how would I think that it like let's say my research was good or successful or something like that it's like if it, if it 10 years my research is obsolete because mm -hmm. education system change that would be great because that means things from within and these conversations that we're having now are like oh so old school <laughs> because yeah. education and rethinking of design as a pluriverse of identities, a pluriverse mm -hmm. of approaches that are very context-based from the different communities and countries and diversities, that would be great. So mm -hmm. I would love that my research become obsolete soon. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's very thought-provoking. Uh, so coming back to this, uh, uh, this slide that you're showing, uh, mm -hmm. who, is, who is an artisanal designer? And I can see that it's an it's intersection of indigenous artisans and hegemonic designer. Yeah, in, in Latin America, this is this field called Diseño Artesanal. And actually there were a few uh, universities and design programs in different countries. In Mexico, I think in Salvador, or um, I don't remember which countries, but they do have as a special thing, you know, like right. Diseño Artesanal. And it's defined as this space when, when designers are, I call it, quote, hegemonic designers, when you are training this Western-centric and all this worldview, approach indigenous communities that have their own worldviews, ways of being and doing, and they focus way more on community rather than mm -hmm. individual. So mm -hmm. we're learning, I remember learning about Diseño de Autore, which is like um, from Italy, you know, like this, you're signing your design and it's very way more individual. 
But then we, we reach with this mindset to work with indigenous artisans and it's still present, especially in textiles, with this notion of development or craft development. So, and actually India has a lot of that with um, uh, designers meet artisans and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, so craft, it was Craft Revival Trust, I think, and also Colombia was involved. So we always have this notion of as designer, an artisan is very different and very disconnected and you have to have and imagine like if you learn that what you design and your creations have your signature and then you approach communities that you're working with their knowledge that is ancestral and that is intergenerational and then you just work with them and then you sign your own collection so this for me a strong disconnection i think colombia is doing a good job in, in, for example, they have some sort of re regulations that when designers work with artisans, they can't claim authorship. Oh. And that was a few years that I heard. I'm not sure if that's current. But um, in Mexico, especially in textiles, um, yeah, like a lot of designers arrive to work with communities. And then um, the way I see it is like the knowledge of the backstrap bloom weaving, for example, to do this garment is from them. Mm -hmm. So they know the techniques and some and, and the patterns that sometimes are taken um, are part of the indigenous people's rights. Right. But then because the designer arrived and then they create their own collections and they sell it under their own names. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a clash there. And actually was there was one example particularly that made me shift. It was before because I've been passionate about this topic like for decades. Yeah. And um, so I, before starting the PhD, I had to go back to Mexico for health issues for my family. So I went back and, um, and because of, yeah, small community, I knew someone like my, my, my father is a doctor. He knows someone and blah, blah, blah. So I, I end up, uh, I wanted to talk with this designer. I had the opportunity to talk with this um, French designer who works in a, in a cooperative and she's part of this cooperative. And um, so I was talking, I know that this cooperative had been for a long time and I was kind of talking with her, approaching just to know a little bit more about the work they do. And, and it was very interesting. At that time, I couldn't understand and, and grasp, but it took me like a year or more to, to see why it felt uncomfortable at that time or I couldn't make sense of this because she said that they had two NGOs, one that was registered in France and part of the French designers, and then they have the local cooperative, another NGO. So the collections that were, devel that were developed in using the indigenous knowledge of the weaving, the backstrap loom weaving and the patterns from the textiles, they were registered by the French NGO. Mm -hmm. And then they give the rights to the indigenous communities to reproduce the designs. But then at that moment, something didn't make sense, but I couldn't grasp what was it. And until I was reading about decolonization, it's like, oh, it made sense. Right. How can you register a design that is so attached to a community that belongs to someone else? And it's not, and you know, like there's always, it's not that they're bad intention people. It's just the way that design has been reproduced and taught. And because in France, design works differently. But then if you come to indigenous communities and all of that, and I know 
after doing more ground interviews and stuff. And I know that that case really, because that designer was brought by another NGO and that created a lot of problems within the first NGO. And this first NGO, NGO that is still doing amazing work now, mm-hmm. they stopped working with designers for decades, like for 10 years. Because right. like, why should we pay royalties for using the designs that are part of our community. You know, like there was a clash, very strong clash, and that was like 20 years ago, maybe. So this is a conversation that has been going on. And there have been changes, but still, I think there's a lot of work to be done. Okay, so the question that I have is, uh, what is the role of an artisanal designer? Because there are two things that I can think of. One is the the, uh, ownership, which lies in the community. And mm-hmm. the second is the design itself uh, from the designer, or is it going to be the design of the, uh, the artisans? So if, if a designer has to provide an impact to the, uh, the community, what is his role in terms of uh, uh, the design? Um, for example, the role that describing this, this uh, reading about this, this guide of, um, for artisanal designers and stuff, or what do they do? They said that they need to know of the market and uh, have links in the market to know what the market needs and wants and all of that. So it's a very market-driven approach. But if you respond on the market's needs, a lot of what I've seen is that um, in ceramic happens as well, uh, because of the western taste of and and i think you will get me into this like uh, because coming from india like our countries are uh, like full of color and patterns everywhere and then we learn design that good design only used two three colors and don't mix patterns because it's bad taste and don't do this and then we're learning this and then we look around us and it's not the reality and things are gorgeous, are just gorgeous. And they are full of everything. As you were talking about minimalism and all of that is like, mm. it just doesn't make sense. And the patterns and of these garments and stuff, yeah. they, they have a meaning and they have a reason why they are here and they have a reason why they're designed. So they have a lot of meanings, but sometimes we designers come and it's like, oh no, let's take everything out and make it clean and put it in the center. Yeah. But then what's the meaning again? So um, what the reason why I work with in, in close collaboration with uh, an independent collective called Malacate Taller Experimental Textile. They have been working as independent group for I think 10 years now or even more. But, um, and they, they uh, work on Facebook, like they commercialize on Facebook, but there's not, and I, I learned so much from them. And actually I say that this research is collective because without them, there wouldn't be any research. Right. And I, I was uh, exploring with them uh, their approach to design. So part of one of the chapters or part of the thesis is Malacate's approach to design because they have their own ways of designing, respecting th- their own times and rhythms because like weaving, it's part of life. It, right. it happens while harvesting. It happens what happens while um raising children and all of that so it's not a uh, it's not a factory that they go and work in so it happens in their communities in the different rhythms 
also they get uh, for example malaga they have a few strategies and i think i i can show a few pictures here further sure. i like they are malacate mm -hmm. um some of the members and then um for example they rescue uh patterns and techniques that sometimes of course because we think an indigenous cultures as being sometimes static in time, but yeah. no, they have evolved their garments in 30 years, like and a tremendous rhythm. So if you see the, the, the textiles from 10 years into now and 20 years, they are so different because it's alive. The culture is alive. So it's being evolving. So learning how they approach design based and respecting their own autonomia that, and I say autonomy in Spanish because it's not the same as autonomy in English and it's not the same as sovereignty. So also that's another thing to understand that sometimes translation become kind of limited. Yeah. So, and they talk about innovación como resistencia, innovations as resistance. So for them, preserving, rescuing, and keeping their ways of working, it's a way of innovation. Because in, if you've seen the pictures, like for example, this type of garment that was used exclusively by men in this community and just one person, one family still know how to do the type of, of gathering and embroidery, those patterns. Yeah. And um, so it's, it's kind of a, you can see like kind of a blouse, but it's, they don't use any type of Western ways of pattern and cutting. It's just gathering the fabric and embroidery. So they, this, now this, uh, this lady, this elder, she's teaching the other families, well, first her own family, her um, daughter, and even, I think even husband now. And they are kind of re like reactivating these designs and also another yeah. community, we can see Aguacatenango, they still rip the fabric with the hands rather than scissors. And they still measure with the body. So we, yeah. it, like the ways of resisting this thing of, like it's more about reeducating consumers like if you want to buy it's because you understand our ways of working and doing instead of like oh i need this particular size and this particular like no you can't do it in in backstrom loop so you have an, an approximate but it's not just doing exactly like mass production because it's not they are artisanal pieces so they have differences so another right. picture of how they rescue um from uh, uh, other type of cloths, like ceremonial tablecloth. And then from there, they've been taking elements and now making guipiles um, with that for wearing. Mm -hmm. But those designs are generated by them, not by external designers. So that's why I wanted, I wanted to work with them to know mm -hmm. how they design from their own worldview. Right. Uh, I think uh, you should go through this presentation because it's fascinating. No, oh, it's, it's very long, it's but big. I just... <laughs> um, maybe, yeah, I mean, anything related to your research, because I feel uh, it's a fascinating research. Uh, especially okay. you mentioned about the, um, how you structured your research in such a way that it metaphorically represented uh, Yoloville. Uh, yeah, Yoloville. Let me, let, let I go back to that part. Yeah. So even... Um, yeah, it was, uh, imagine being within academic systems of design that have very particular way of approaching design. So decolonizing design within inside the system, is kind of complicated. So it's a lot of 
Um, and I'm, I'm very fortunate that I'm part of, of uh, it's called Mike Yarunui group. It's uh, Mountain Indigenous Postgraduate Scholars from any field, but uh, yeah, Maori and indigenous scholars from around the world that we get together and support each other because we're developing ways of doing research differently within our own communities. And, and my supervisor, um, Dr. Jenny Wilson, that I always be like so grateful for her. And she's also part of, of my, she's a coordinator. She said like, we have to be brave and we have to support each other because we will face this kind of you, like, you have to be brave in order to do things the way that we need to do for our communities. That sometimes it could be kind of complex. Yeah, so, um, yes. So at the end, these groups are very important as well, just to bounce this idea. That's why for me, inviting and sharing with anyone who wants to approach design from a different perspective, I'm kind of open and supportive because I've been in that journey as well. So for example, um, yeah, the methodology at the end that was uh, developed, it's called Holobil. Um, but Holobil is backstrap loom weaving, is the way that these things are made. And um, and I had reached, a, let's say, I, I conceptualized as a methodology almost at the end because I knew all this stuff and I, tr I was trying to make sense from a Western perspective of this and I just couldn't. I just couldn't. I couldn't find. The, the right things to in order to name stuff. But when I was talking with weavers, not only from Mexico, but even from here, um, anyone that was familiar with the language of the threads and weaving, like my, my supervisor, she also do Tanico weaving, which is Maori. And um, I told her that I, I had the need to learn this again and like to learn this. And she said like, yeah, you have to. So there are things that you haven't, I didn't need to to explain to her because she knew like once you go through your body with this knowledge you will get it mm -hmm. so at the end i i thought that holobill was a was a good uh, way of structuring because holobill the backstrap loom weaving that is so common in in mayan communities but all mesoamerica and even in in philippines they are as well and south america um it's a type of weaving that is called uh, it's backstrap loom because it's attached around the waist and you can see here the that is in the waist and you, you mm -hmm. saw the movement of, of Lucy, what she was doing. So this, just to conceptualize of them, using this as a metaphor of a cycle, you know, like she has to lean forward her body in order to lead this loose and change the direction of the threads and then mm -hmm. lean back in order to have the, the threads very tense. So, and this is something that it was um, taught by the goddess Ixchel based on Mayans. And we can find this in codex. And it's, it's a knowledge that has been present in Mesoamerica for so long. And it has meanings, you know, like it's not only the technique, but for example, for them, the symbolism of, of tying the, the top of the umbilical cord as umbilical cord to the tree, because normally they attach to trees. So it's like the connection with Mother Earth. Mm -hmm. And then the different parts of the, of the loom is the head, you know, the, the ribs, the heart, the feet. And, and you saw the movement of the weaver, it's, it's the representation of birth and the contractions uh -huh. giving birth. Yeah. And this, doing this, you even when, when I finally kind of get an idea of how to do it, you get in a sort of a meditative state. So the benefits of textiles are way beyond the commercial. And I think the commercial is even the, you know, like uh, the least that you can, 
think of. But if we think about the communities that actually they make a living out of it, out of this, like Kilkush Lehal, which is the fair dignified life of the Buen Vivir from the communities, from social and central communities, it's part of who they are and it's how can they make a living based on, on their own practice. So, um, so that became a way for me to understand because I, I, I'm very visual. So I needed to do diagrams in order to understand and make sense of my thoughts. Yeah. So Backstrom, Louvre or Holoville definitely helped me to, to conceptualize and theorize all these things and using um, epistemologies, onto-epistemologies of the South. So for example, another, even, even visually, I use the language of the threads a lot. And, and just because textiles, I, I said, even not only help me for the research, but even rescue me personally again, and being in touch with the textiles as, again, from a making perspective, which embroidery and stuff like that have been part of what I learned as a child, but I forgot because that's not design. And then how can I reclaim that and reframe it now from a different perspective? And I am I'm discovering as well that this is attached to my well-being as well. And in COVID times, like the amount of groups that have been doing uh, all this type of work online and groups and sharing tutorials, it's huge because it's so connected to our well-being. Right. So I had to, yeah, I, I kind of, I was almost finishing the thesis. Yeah, it was my last. Yeah, it was the last revisions. And I remember a feedback of, because the structure of the thesis is not a traditional structure. And I was very concerned of, because we consciously, with my supervisors, we discussed and consciously discussed that we wanted to break that structure in order to work the best for the work. And in cycles, as we were talking, you know, like the cycles of, of, of weaving. So um, I created this piece in order to make readers understand that it's the same as a recent, like the necessary things for a PhD thesis are there. You know, like you have the introduction, lead review, research methodology, research design and methodology, results and finding and discussion and conclusions are all there, but they're structured a little bit differently. So chapter introduction, chapter one could be one section and then lead review here, but also, you know, like methodology is in time with results. Yeah. In a way, I use the visual and the language of the threads to try to make sense of my thinking and that yeah. transmit that to others. And uh, so I, I used it. No, I knew that I wanted to use ethnography and I use Sarah Spink approach because she talks about the visual, digital, and sensorial ethnography. And that is was discovered through time and the different different and the different uh, field trips because I was thinking more in timeline. You know, like first trip, second trip. Uh, second trip, third trip, but then at the end I realized that they're all connected, but it was useful to make a distinction of every um, every chapter to focus on a different thing. So like the visual or the digital, because they work in a digital space and a lot of the, the ethical consumption and artisanal pieces are sold in digital platforms like Facebook and Instagram. So at the end that became another focus. And then the sensorial ethnography, like, um, like my need to go through learning, um, you know, like backstrap loom as well, going through that with my own body to understand these things, it was, it became key, the senses, how to make things, uh, uh, understand things through the senses. And I put a, um, a GoPro in, in hard level. So I use the camera 
uh, as the eyes of my heart so they can right. visualize. And again, here I, I use, uh, try to use um, epistemologies of the South. So sentir pensar is translated sentir is feel, pensar is think. And this comes from, um, well, it's known in academia for uh, Orlando Falls Borda from Colombia, but he acknowledged this term from uh, fishermen communities that he, that he heard this term for the first time that we, we think while we feel and we feel what we think. So sentir pensar is, is, is very well established already in Latin American scholar uh, within academia. And then corazonar, mm -hmm. which is corazón is heart. And corazonar is very attached to the uh, Mayan worldview and, com and language as well. Um, so they said, uh, when they asked in Sotzil, ¿Cómo está tu corazón? Is how is your heart? That's how are you? So the, the importance of the heart, it's, yeah. it's the central of Mayan worldview. And Mesoamerican as well, not only Mayan, like Yolotl in Nahuatl from Aztec. So it's like, you know, like the heart has been so present in our culture for so long. And so Corazonar also, in, it's a play of word in Spanish because it's co, if you, div you divide the word, co, reason. So to reason with the heart, mm. but also collectively. So co-reasoning and yeah. embodiment that that's, that's yeah. Um, my second supervisor, he's a biologist, a Chilean with a Poche heritage bi biologist that he talked about embodiment and he showed me about embodiment and when I, understood that is like it makes so much sense because yeah like you embody the research i embody textiles you know how how they embody textiles in their way of being and doing so it's like how how this way of understanding from through the senses and our whole beings are very important to to knowledge creation and understanding right so uh, like you mentioned about senti pensar or buen vivir mm -hmm. which is like uh community well-being uh, mm -hmm. if i may if i'm if i'm not wrong so mm -hmm. how, how are these philosophies manifesting in your research or in in perhaps even the uh, artisanal design yeah uh well buen vivir as such as a term has been attached into Sumaca and Sumaca Maña, which is, um, let's say, the Wembibir from the Andean regions, from Quechua and Aymara. And as a, it also became part of the, of the constitution from Ecuador and uh, Bolivia and stuff. So in the Andes region, they talk a lot about Wembibir in South America. But then Wembibir as such, like if we, um, if we think about what buen vivir means, not in Spanish, but like in different indigenous languages, then I was thinking like, what is the buen vivir of the community that I'm working with? And so they call up, they talk about lequil kushlehal, that it's lequil is good and kushlehal is life. So how can we achieve a good living? But good living here, and again, the translations didn't, don't help a lot, but well-being it's attached to, the, from the winter perspective, is not the same as when vivir. So we talk about like collective well-being, that it's the individual, but always in relation, so relationality, relationality and, 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 and be connected with the context and community and the environment is key. And so, and, and 
exploring and researching about how in Yala, that's a, the name, indigenous name from American continent from the Kuna people, or we talk in, in, in Nahuatl, we talk about Semanahuac, in the different regions, in different countries, um, indigenous communities talk about different ways of buen vivir. So mm -hmm. for, for, for example, in Yecnemilis is from Nahuatl people from the center of Mexico, and Panama, Guatemala. So we can see a lot of different ways of naming this philosophy of Buen Vivir, but it's manifested differently in each okay. community. So I, we wanted to explore how Lequilcuchlejal is connected into the uh, textiles. Mm. And it's key. Like for being a weaver, it's an identity, it's a way of being and doing. So it's connected to your well-being because while doing the it's a way of meditation as well, you know, like it's, it's, you enter and you connect with ancestry and you connect with nature. And for me, um, it was great. Like I, when, when you saw the picture that I, the place that I was learning back from Lou, my teacher, Mari, she was, uh, she was teaching me. And um, so Mari was there. Her mom was there. It was in her house. And uh, her, I think her niece, my mom went with me that time. And while I was learning, I, I kind of stopped for a while and I don't know if I could say that I have a brief taste of because I could see, you know, like in the garden, they were growing the corn and food. And then you have animals there like the chickens and families around. You're connected with nature. You're connected with your ancestry through what you're making, through knowledge. So it's just a little taste. So it's, it's a, it's something that you pursued, a fair dignified life. And what they look by, let's say, trading the textiles is actually to achieve a fair dignified life. It's not about getting rich. It's not about, it's just to have enough and to have access and, and dignity. So that's why it's fair dignified life because mm -hmm. uh, the sense of self and respect to yourself and your community is important. So right. which is weaving, it's so expressed in everyday life but also in the way they talk so yeah that's basically we explore a lot of what is lequil what what is lequil kushlejal for them how do they feel how does it taste and um so the co-design workshops that we're conducting with them they were talking about um they, the the presence of the heart was very important so they talk about working community work with the heart that are work is valued attached to identity so we talk about otan led otan is in celtal uh heart which is attached to uh lopez Incin, is a mayan scholar from the region um an activist so that's why i use otan because it was already established within the let's say the academia but then um even the heart is so present that in every region they talk the, the talk about the heart with different words like con con ton because it's so present that it's in our languages and it, from a different region so yeah that's that's in a way what we try to explore and actually from one trip to the other i could see they created this piece that is how and they embroidered that mm. how they manifest in their language or in their life so they have food they have weaving you know nature 
So this piece was created by them. I was about to think, I was thinking, oh, maybe they can do something. And they did it by themselves. I didn't say anything because that's a way of, of expression. And then we explore in different media as well. Like, you know, like drawing, a lot of drawing because they draw. Uh, they are so creative that because of the different languages, like the group that we work in, one of the co-design sessions, they were uh, from, they spoke Sotil uh, and Celtal two different languages. So we have, there were 21 women, so we have to divide it into teams. And for me, it was not about me listening and, and how could you have to adapt? Because I couldn't record that. I, there was no point and I couldn't understand. And at the end, it's just le letting them, the, uh, giving them the space, the safe space and freedom to express in their own language. Right. While they were discussing in teams. And then they create some sort of like, you know, like posters and stuff that they can uh, portray and also the camera. There's a, um, um, a instant camera, Instafilm, so they can take pictures real time instead of, because you can cut the patterns and paste it in a poster on a paper. So they will take pictures of garments of themselves and then just put it there and together with drawings, with words. So just to have them to give them the freedom so they can communicate with me right. in that they will be feel comfortable. And also I was very blessed to be able to take my, my mom and my daughter with me. She learned how to do embroidery there in one of the trips because it's part of the way they work together. So it's in, instead of me as an external reaching out, oh, this is the way we're working. It's just like, I'm just here and share, you can share whatever you want with me, you know? And, and yeah. my daughter, yeah, like, she was there getting, she was six at the time. And then they, I could see the dynamic of like one starting to draw and the other one do you want to learn? And the other one was teaching her. My mom was helping with some threads. So it's, it's, yeah. it's, I think it's another way of doing research that is actually more aligned with me. And my mom's still in touch with them and I'm still in touch with them. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So uh, what was your final result of this whole PhD research and thesis? Uh, the, one of the proposals that we, um, kind of came into, yeah, like try to make sense of, um, the things that we can transmit to other people. It was, I don't, I think, I don't know if I have in there, but yeah, exploring the meanings and the worldview within the patterns as well. But the proposal was, uh, to do a Buen Vivir centric design. And this is, was playing a little bit of, you know, like, human-centered design, user-centered design. We talk about all these things. So it's like, we were exploring how a Buen Vivir-centric design would look like. What are the principles? Or what are the things that we can, um, if we talk about Buen Vivir as the focus of the work, how would this manifest? Right. So we start exploring different ways of, of combining with the, with uh, Maya, uh, the Cosmovision Maya, yeah. Uh, ways of being and doing and connecting the, the three realms for example from this path, uh, pattern you can see it means it has a lot of meaning so the on the, the is the world the cardinal points and then from the center which is the city grows the sacred tree that connects the world of the the underworld the world of the, the deceased with the world of the living in the trunk and the world of the gods on top so mm -hmm. from these principles of this idea of cycle um, and using Zapatista principles as well, like how 
exploring how the heart and buen vivir or like push lejal is connected in, in the context in different ways. So we as designers or researchers or whatever, we need to go down because we come from a place of hierarchy already. So we mm. need to go down and be humble and let them do the talking, not rather than us imposing. And then let the speck or the seed just to flourish and to go into the light and to understand that holobil is resistance as well. You know, like just keeping the, preserving the practice is still an act of resist, of resistance in a, in a capitalist world and with capitalism yeah. that just want you to produce, mass produce, and the meaning behind the stuff are gone and it's not important. So they, they operate respecting their own worldview and autonomia. So that's why they operate in a different way. So this is one of the proposals at the end. And I said in the thesis, in the closing, that this is just a seed that is intended to be planted in different soils. So Buen Vivir will manifest differently in Mapuche communities in Chile, for example, or with Maori here. Right. So it's just like guiding principles, but actually need to be developed side by side and by communities in different, like very context-based. So uh, this model, it's very attached to Meluch, the symbol that is a worldview. And, right. and it's just guiding principles on understanding that Buen vivir, and I try to represent like with the same language of the threads, you know, like in a textile, if you pull one, one thread, you can yeah, see everything. how the whole thing start deforming. So yeah. that was the idea with this model. Nice. So at the end, we have uno con el todo, one with the whole. So it's a harmonic coexistence of the earth, or we call it um, tonantzin, the mother earth, or here they call it papa tuanuku, and then pachamama. In, in South America. So we are, we need to have a, a harmonious coexistence with earth beings. And here we talk, I can talk about being not only human beings, but the, the, the trees, the stones, the mountains, the lakes, they all have this div divine energy. So that's why we talk about beings in general and nature culture, because in indigenous worldviews, there's no disconnection between nature and culture. It's just a line. True. And then from the other side, we have colectividad. And I play a lot with language here. <laughs> you will see like Spanish, English, because there are things that cannot be translated. True, true. And so I put autonomia from a Latin American perspective. Reciprocity, that's something so present in indigenous communities everywhere. Um, complementaridad, like to complement things. So because in my worldview, even the deity is not female or male there's always cycle when there's death there is life when there is feminine there's the masculine they're not opposed they are complementing each other so yeah. the same happens here like we need to understand that we complement each other and here instead of support i talk about mutual care and care is related to the heart because right. it's not as oh yeah, yeah yeah the distinction between charity you know, like, because sometimes when we talk about charity, it's just like, leave my handouts. But mutual care is because I care about you deeply from the heart. So I, I, I want to be like solidarita, solidaridad, solidarity with you. So it's a little bit different of support based on charity. Right. And then we have the other side, uh, resource. I call it resource full. 
and I put a quote and I break the word uh, because resourcefulness is also another theory that is already developed that I didn't explore actually, but it's because sometimes we say on in, in let's say global Northern countries is like, if you don't have funding, then you don't do. But in countries like us, it's like, it doesn't matter. Like you do what you have with what you do, what you can with what you have, because life goes on and you can sit down and wait that someone else give you and solve you. <laughs> yeah, I didn't so that's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was resource full, full of resources, whatever you have in. And then, for example, Malacate also operates in other economies, social and solidarity economics, rather than the, the logic of the capital. And one of the conclusions for me in the research is like, they can't be ethical consumption under the logic of the capital. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's around ethics and dignity. Like dignity is something that even in charity, sometimes in, in charity models, dignity is something that we don't, they, when I see this, um, yeah, like these campaigns are using the poor people, you yeah. know, like it's a marketing strategy. Where's the dignity of the person? You know, like it's, so we need to be very careful as well. And yeah. then pluriversal, which is, uh, yeah, many worlds, uh, como, like Zapatista say, un mundo donde quepan todos los mundos, a world with many worlds can fit. So understanding right. the pluriversal nature, not universal nature of our of everything, right. and then different dimensions. Understanding that our cultures believe in other ways of being that is not only tangible, but the deities, the spirits, vibes. We talk about las vibras, las malas vibras, y las buenas vibras is. There's beliefs that are embedded in who we are. And even if, in, and I know that sometimes in academia, these things are rejected, like spirituality and all of that, but it's part of who we are. And, and why can't we just break with it? And I, and I here I clarify, I'm not, a, not talking about religion. I'm talking about spirituality, which is a little different thing. Yeah, and then also understand the paradox that exists within worlds. And also the, the last one is the equilibrium, you know, like, understand that everything is in constant movement and change. So equilibrium is dynamic and it comes in times and cycles. And sometimes we are in darkness, but sometimes we reach understanding and we reach a little bit of light. So even if within my own research, I was in this constant space of sometimes not knowing what I'm doing. Yeah. But then oh. trusting that things will come up and letting the, letting the, data and i don't call data but letting the research or letting the things emerge by themselves and then try to make sense of them and always consulting and always align with my with these compañeras so, so this whole so this whole structure that uh, you, you have come up with so it's like a grounding theory if someone has to uh, let's say uh, a designer wants to come into the community and would like to look at the the whole uh, the design of the um, of the textiles and the design uh, and and the community itself. Uh, and after understanding, probably the designer can come up with new designs. Is that how uh, you you want to proceed, no. or is it just that it's just the understanding of the whole community? Well, here I well that's the kind of principles, but because at the end I realized that in order to like indigenous communities are not the ones who need to be decolonized, are the designers. 
we as designers need to be decolonized if we want to go to work with communities. Otherwise, we will be colonizing again. Right. So um, there are more principles to us to understand our, and there's a lot of reflexivity that comes with it, you know, like understanding our, our the, that's why I call about the 3PA, the, the power, privilege, politics, and access. These conversations need to be in the table, even though they are uncomfortable. But if you really want to change the context, we really need to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. And um, and I don't have it in the presentation, but here in the in the thesis in the last chapters, there are like eleven points that are kind of recommendations of how a Buenvivir design um, centric design could manifest. So they are not um, how can I say like they are not necessarily. Uh, yeah, you tick check boxes or so tick boxes like uh, don't 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 don't, yeah. but they are kind of ways of thinking. Um, yeah, like there are eleven steps that I have here. Like for example, creativity as a right, like artisans to be creative, not only makers, because sometimes they are approached. They are creative by nature. They do amazing stuff, and we come just to tell them what to do, and yeah. that's not. So creativity as a right, and then. The acknowledgement of design, like process patterns and techniques that are part of the indigenous rights of the communities we work with. So all of these things, are, we need to understand that that belongs to their own uh, communities right. and they are part of the rights. And that's recognized by UNESCO, like, you know, like in Article 11 and 31. And then another one, it's the trade or brand name, not under the designer's names, indigenous or non-indigenous, because I've seen like in most in global northern countries like here or in Canada and other places that yes they are indigenous designers but still benefit mostly the individual rather than the collective and they still operate on the capitalism and stuff so mm -hmm. that's why for, for us it was important to clarify that the collective should be there and the naming as well because it's not only you it's your community and then, for example, horizontality and non-hierarchy. Like, so artisans to be considered as designers and artists at the same level as uh, Western or global Northern educated designers. Like their knowledge is as valuable as the one that I'm bringing. It's not less. True. Uh, personal relationships, face-to-face, long-term relationships. Not only like I go, I do a project and then I'm gone. Because personal, to develop trust and personal relationship takes time. Um, yeah, like operating maybe uh, as a autonomous collective that they don't depend on government funding sometimes because mm -hmm. that comes with a cost yeah. and that comes and sometimes this funding come, they have expectations. Um, yeah, working together in long-term respectful projects. Uh, yeah, indigenous knowledge and principles at the center to rescue and revival of techniques and community-based innovation. So understand that they already innovate and the indigenous knowledge should be the main, not the market needs. Mm -hmm. uh, informing and educating consumers about context processes with transparency. So okay. who are the communities? Who are the makers? What are the techniques? How many hours it takes? You know, like it's not, it's not an object or, or a product, but it, it's related to another uh, a lot of knowledge behind and so we need to know about these things right. uh, using original names for example we feel we feel is the name or this is called it's mocheval or we feel this is the right name because 
there are brands that go to Mexico mm. and buy a lot of garments and they sell it overseas and they call it kaftan mm. instead of huipil. But mm. then if you honor and you say that you love the culture of Mexico and you're making a living out of it, why don't you honor the names that we use rather than using another it's colonizing and you're using another the captain is from a different context right and they already took the word and use it <laughs> without context yeah and yeah and operate on their alternative economics such as social and solidarity economy so it's more a series of recommendations and stuff that in order to actually do when vivir centric design we need to do this type of collaboration so it's not my expectation more like designers doing what to do but to work alongside and actually my questioning is do they need designers to tell them how to design based on my experience with malacate they don't that is true uh however one uh i think we are running out of time but one yeah. last question is uh, yeah again uh, i i'm going to play a devil's advocate the thing is yeah. for example covid-19 Mm. um because of that uh, you don't have market uh, demand for for the products uh, for mm. many artisans are going bankrupt uh, and even craftsmen are going bankrupt uh so i feel at these points of time at least a designer can let's say uh, helps them out in probably doing for example making masks instead of mm. uh, ooh I can show you the amount of masks that they have emerged in Mexico like yeah. from artisanal communities so many so right. many they are they are happening and they are doing it by themselves yeah so you don't need a designer per se now uh, they are why they are designers already uh-huh. we just don't name it that way but they are designers already and and you can find different like yeah like i'm impressed and i would love to be there to get on a lot of masks because like each community i create face masks based on the patterns from their own communities so you can get masks from sotil and central communities from chiapas or from uh um uh cadenilla from oaxaca from elismo so the patterns are very different depending on the region and there's already happening and i don't know if they actually use a designer for that so yeah. yeah it's just acknowledging them they are designers yeah that's true uh, i think i uh, i remember just now one of the stories where uh, uh, even in india one of the uh, artisans uh, i don't remember in which area he was an artisan but the fact is that he posted on facebook stating that i'm sorry i'm uh, i'm going bankrupt so here's a, a design of a mask that i'm doing if you please uh, want to um, uh, contribute and buy this that would be really helpful for me and that post just went viral and every mm. single day he was having 300 to 400 calls uh, you know and orders so i think i, I and as you mentioned it's true that um, they are designers themselves and they know what they can do in times of yeah. distress uh and uh, probably you can say that uh, uh desperate times call for desperate measures so they end up doing different things 
as the as the need you know requires yeah yeah it's like that's that's how we we have been operated for centuries before modernity that's the way having what we have been doing so yeah i will rethink even the term design or designer you know like who's a designer because of course there are indigenous designers that are educated on their hegemonic design as well and reproducing that and having the same individual mindset or market-driven mindset so we i think for me that will be a risk it's not only about you identifying as indigenous or not it's more about operating and in different ways that are not complicit with with patriarchy with capitalism with modernity and all of it yeah yeah that was that was thought-provoking and very insightful uh, i think we should uh, give this an end uh, yeah. and it was and and i believe uh, and i i mean i really loved having you here with, on my podcast and getting to know so much about uh, your thesis your research uh, the philosophy that the community uh, employs uh, and it's fascinating for me uh, and thought provoking and insightful as i mentioned earlier so no, thank you. we will have to end this now and to my fellow folks listening in uh, i've shared the link down below to diana's thesis on bon vivir if i'm pronouncing it correctly uh, centric design model so it is just tip of the iceberg of uh, what she has done uh, uh, i mean what we've spoken today so what she has done is a, l- a lot more and it's phenomenal and i would recommend you to read uh, her thesis so it's down there in the link and uh, i'll see you next time with more such experts on my show until then namaskara insert outro music